in 19, uh, I'm sorry, in 1862, a young up-and-coming officer in the United States Army Corps of Engineers was sent to the new Bedford, Massachusetts community to recover from illness. He was a devout Baptist. His father was a minister and later the first president of Morehouse College. And this officer was unexpectedly asked to chair a meeting at the New Bedford Baptist Church, a committee meeting. It did not go well. <laughs> he lost control of the meeting. Apocryphally, it was a meeting about abolition, but it's hard to figure out exactly what committee meetings are about 150 years later. It, in any case, it devolved into a shouting match between members of the congregation, church stalwarts, and the young officer swore that he would never again chair a meeting at any church function. <laughs> he wrote shortly afterwards, quote, one can scarcely have had much experience in deliberative meetings of Christians without reading, without realizing that the best of men, having wills of their own, are liable to carry out their own views without paying sufficient respect to the rights of their opponents. A decade later, the officer, now a major, was stationed on the West Coast where he was asked to serve on the Board of Trustees of the San Francisco Baptist Church as well as the YMCA. He decided to say yes, but on one condition, that he start work on a guide for how churches and voluntary organizations could deliberate and reach decisions in a way that would be more structured than that existing admonition that church members should, quote, love and be kind to one another. He felt that love and be kind to one another was a lovely idea, but a poor basis for a meeting. <laughs> so if it's not already obvious in the story and in the sermon title, the young officer was Henry Robert III. And the pamphlet he wrote for the First Baptist Church in San Francisco entitled Pocket Manual of Rules of Order for Deliberative Assemblies <laughs> was renamed after his death and exists today in the 10th edition of Robert's Rules of Order. I'll just be honest here, I actually love Robert's Rules of Order. <laughs> the, this copy right here sits in my office. There's another copy that sits at home, right next to my computer at home. That one was a gift from a, a mentor in ministry a couple years ago. I'm not sure if it was a joke gift or not. <laughs> and I didn't have the heart to say I already have a copy of this. I've spent years in board meetings and congregational meetings following Robert's Rules of Order. And I pr appreciate that it provides a framework, a kind of discipline on what could otherwise be a, uh, shall we say, raucous and confusing process of deliberation. And of course, I like Robert's rules. Our congregational culture, our culture as a whole, is informed by who we are, by the assumptions that we all bring to it. And I'm 
fairly introverted. I'm a process-loving former public policy analyst. A set of rules developed by an army officer in the Corps of Engineers speaks to folks like me really well. <laughs> Here's actually how the official biography of Roberts' rules, of Roberts on the Corps of Engineers website concludes, quote, Roberts was a man of high moral character, religious conviction, and scientific commitment. His rules of order reflect these characteristics. He optimistically presumed that middle-class Christian virtue ensures the emergence of a worthy general will once members sliced through superficial procedural issues. Subsequent decades have severely challenged Robert's optimism. <laughs> In the century and a half since Roberts developed the first edition of what are now the rules of order, two basic problems have been increasingly obvious. The first and most visible is that far from slicing through superficial procedural issues, over-reliance on Robert's rules of order can lead to a conversation becoming almost wholly about superficial procedural issues rather than the issue on the table. This happens with almost sad regularity at our general assemblies. There are three microphones set up. This is the, the National Unitarian Universalist General Assembly. There are three microphones set up. On one side, there's a pro mic. On the other side, there's a con mic. And in the middle, there's a procedural mic. One for folks to speak for a motion, one to speak against, and a third for procedural questions and motions that supersede the first two. Often, questions and motions from the procedure microphone take up most of the time allotted for debate. Then time runs out, a vote is taken rather hurriedly, and everyone, no matter what side they might argue, is frustrated that their voices have not been heard. Now, it is possible to run a meeting using Robert's rules that does not have that problem. But it is a problem that is ever-present. Robert's rules have evolved from a small, self-published pamphlet that was about 14 pages long into 700 pages, covering every possible permutation of motion, amendment, speech. See, for instance, section 43, subsection occasions justifying brief discussion outside debate, part two, <laughs> allowable expl explanation of a pending undebatable motion, which reads, in part, the chair should be careful not to allow this type of consultation to develop into an extended colloquy between members or to take on the semblance of debate. And he should generally remain standing while the consultation takes place to show the floor has not been assigned. So Linda, you're the board president. You got that? <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> But there's another less obvious problem. Robert's rules were a product of a very specific time and a specific point of view. Henry Robert was an engineer. He was an army officer. He wrote most of the rules during the Victorian age. And the rules then reflect the characteristics of his time and profession. They rely a lot on formality. They come from a, particularly, a particular way of thinking about collective decision making 
as having two sides of a debate with a winner and a loser at the end. And, somewhat obviously, they use male pronouns throughout. It says something that even in the excerpt from the latest edition, this was published just a couple years ago, that it assumes that the chairperson is male. And it assumes that the chairperson can stand. So to me, the most important shortfall of Robert's rules is this. They privilege folks who have the time and capacity in their lives to learn the twists and turns of a very complex parliamentary procedure. To put it another way, the people who are most likely to get their way in a debate using Robert's rules are the folks who have the spare time and energy to memorize the rules and use them to their advantage. People who don't have that time, mostly younger folks, poorer folks, overworked organizers, can feel cut out of the process. Not because their ideas don't have support, but because they don't know the intricacies of the process. That is not a good basis for a meeting. So we aren't the first people to make these observations. The board of the Unitarian Universalist Association has been moving to a more consensus-based style of governing over the last two, three-ish years. And while the bylaws changes required to change the procedure at the annual General Assembly of Unitarian Universalists are... Um, <laughs> to change the national bylaws is, is a project um, that takes years, and it's one that's underway now to say, how might we organize ourselves in a different way? So, our congregational meetings are somewhat less complex than General Assembly at the Unitarian Universalist Association. So, this afternoon we're going to try a congregational meeting in a different format. Members of congregational leadership have spent a lot of time this fall rethinking how we organize our congregational meetings, reflecting on what has worked well in the past and some of the challenges with our process, as well as the problems that, frankly, we've talked about this morning. So they've, they've developed a potential new way of doing congregational meetings which we've talked about at our town halls over the last month, and that we're going to try out in about 25 minutes. So we are set up in a circle so that we can look at each other instead of up at a single leader behind a podium. Our process for discussion is going to be a form of consensus building rather than our traditional motion amendment process. And we're going to incorporate elements of worship, singing, listening to music, ending the reading, ending the meeting with a reading. This is an experiment. And we know this about experiments. If they go completely off the rails and crash and burn, well, we have gathered an important piece of information. <laughs> but I don't think that's going to happen. Instead, I think we're going to see what it feels like to have a decision-making process that doesn't assume that some people with a certain point of view win and everybody else loses. We'll feel what it feels, what it's like to face each other in the process 
a congregational meeting that is face-to-face -face instead of shoulder-to-shoulder. -shoulder. The practice of Unitarian congregations managing their own affairs stretches way back. The democratic governance in Unitarian churches predates the word Unitarian. If you go far enough back, it goes all the way back to the Reformation in Europe. And that process of democratic government has not always been the same. In a lot of old New England churches, there are pews set up. And the ones that still have them have names on the side of the pews because those were the men who could rent the pews. And the only people that could speak or vote at a congregational meeting were the folks that had the money to rent a pew. Things change. We don't do that anymore. We don't have pews in this church. But in each generation we are asked, how do we make our process, our way of governing ourselves more equitable, to more closely match up with what we proclaim is true in the world? That each person has a voice. That collectively we say something important. That there aren't winners and losers in this congregation, there are the folks that come together and make decisions. So that's what congregational meetings are about. And we're going to try it a different way, but it's going to be fun. And some things are going to work, and some things are going to be learning experiences. <laughs> and that's good. Because that means we are growing and changing as a group of people. And Unitarian Universalism is about nothing else if it is not about transformation. So. Thus ends the shortened homily. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>